Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. I thought I would take a Sunday and just do a little bit more in-depth study on what I've entitled the morning's message, The Two Baptisms. And one of my goals this morning is that uh, we have a biblical understanding of what the Bible teaches on uh, water baptism and in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And let's turn, if you would, to where Paul read in the Great Commission, the last three verses of uh, Matthew's Gospel. We will be coming back and um, going back to uh, 23 and 24 and so on and so forth. But this morning I thought we would do a topical uh, because of the baptism today. So Matthew 28, verse 18, Then Jesus came, and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, then teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So this morning, because of the baptism this afternoon, we'll be looking at an in-depth study on baptism, but two. And um, I hope you see as, as clearly as I do that uh, the scriptures actually deal with two baptisms, one water and one with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Most of our time will be spent in the book of Acts. But um, in most born-again churches, uh, certainly in the Calvary Chapel movement, we practice what we call believer's baptism. And without exception, when you look through the scriptures, it's always believe and be baptized. It's never the other way around. And so I want to discuss, even before we get into the teaching, uh, why we don't practice um, infant baptism um, uh, here, at, here at Calvary. Um, there was no such thing as infant baptism for the first 431 years of church history. It only came into existence um, in the Roman Catholic Church in 431 B.C., and I'm not just going to talk about uh, Roman Catholicism on this issue. I also want to talk about mainline Protestantism. So I'm going to quote, first of all, uh, from a Roman uh, uh, Catholic catechism as it deals with the issue of baptism um, for infants. And I'm quoting from page 194. And the question is, what is baptism? And it says, baptism is the first of the seven sacraments. Uh, Through this sacrament, we are born into new life. And then in question five, it says, is baptism necessary for salvation? Their answer to that is yes, baptism is necessary for salvation. Now that's from a Roman Catholic perspective. The sacraments are important in salvation, along with good works. Now, Martin Luther, on the other hand, as I switch gears and go from Roman Catholicism to Protestantism, of course, with the Reformation, just being a little over 500 years ago, 
we have um, this article that I dug up this week. It's called The Reformer's Defense of Infant Baptism. And the article briefly explores how the Reformers defended infant baptism. Um, The three major movers and shakers here is Ulrich uh, Zwingli, Martin Luther, and John Calvin. Now, Martin Luther, I came, grew up in a Lutheran church, and we have different versions of Lutheranism today. But as I studied this and being brought in it, um, especially Martin Luther really is talking out of both sides of his mouth. He was a Catholic priest who, um, you know, um, put his, was it, 95 theses on the Wittenberg door and his defense of why he has to leave the Catholic Church because he believes that salvation is apart from works, period. Now, after a period of time, he backpedaled and um, defended infant baptism. And you, you really can't have it both ways. You can't have salvation um, apart from works, any works at all. And when you, as a, a parent or a family member, would um, have infant baptism and then attribute that to salvation, I'll give you one example that bothered me to no end. Uh, my mother's uh, oldest sister, Sue, um, they were farm people. Grandpa cleared 80 acres by himself with a <laughs> bunch of horses and, and lived in a tar shack and raised six kids. And Sue was the oldest of them. This would be between um, uh, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, and Kadat, Wisconsin. And so that's where the, the Crandalls and Dovilles grew up. Um, went to Lutheran church uh, their, their whole life. And um, my Aunt Sue was led to the Lord by my parents after they got saved in the mid-70s. Uh, they came down to visit Mom and Dad in Arizona one time and, and um, took them to the Calvary Chapel where John Higgins is. And my Aunt Sue got saved. <clears throat> but she was older when she received the Lord. <clears throat> and she finally passed. And we have every confidence that she's with the Lord. But all the family is Lutheran. So I attended the uh, funeral. It was in a Lutheran church. And the first thing out of the pastor's mouth is, we know that Sue is with the Lord in heaven because she was baptized when she was an infant. And it took me everything to hold on to something <laughs> to stand up and said, this is my family they're talking to. And I know it's not true. And to attribute that, to give that false sense of security that, um, that she's in heaven because when she was six months old, uh, she was baptized is flat out not biblical. My goal this morning is to show you from the scriptures what the scriptures teach on this particular doctrine. And there's two of them here. One's the doctrine of water baptism and one is the uh, doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So there's much we could say on that. And um, uh, as we get into our study this morning, we've just read the Great Commission. And um, then the Lord was taken into heaven. In case I forget to say this later, let me say it now. The Lord told his disciples it was expedient that he go to heaven. Because if he didn't go to heaven, then he couldn't send back 
the Holy Spirit. And so, um, Acts chapter 1, Jesus is bodily taken into heaven. Two angels appear to the men from Galilee, say, you men of Galilee, why are you standing looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who is taken up from you today will return in like manner. And the heavy thing about that is to the very spot that he left from. He left from the Mount of Olives, and he will return to the Mount of Olives. And it is here that he is charging his disciples to preach his gospel, and then those who would respond to identify with him, they should be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My question is when the disciples started to preach the gospel, the first message, did they do that? We need to turn to Acts chapter 2, and we will explore Peter's first message after being filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 is, of course, the fulfillment of Pentecost. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with one accord in one place. There would have been people from all over the world. We read here from Judea, Mesopotamia, Pontius, Asia, and um, Croatians, Arabs. Uh, Many different people had gathered in Jerusalem for this feast. And while they were there, it says that the Holy Spirit fell upon all of them. And this is the only time that this happened. The Holy Spirit could be seen with clothes of fire over their head, but also heard. The Bible says it came in like a mighty rushing wind. Now, that has never been repeated, at least not in the New Testament. And when this began to happen, they began to speak in their languages of other people that were there, and they were explaining the wonderful deeds of the Lord. And when non-believers witnessed this, they said, you guys are drunk. And it was Peter that says, no, they're not. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. He says, I'll tell you what it is. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel. Again, here's another prophecy as we make our way, making the connection between fulfilled prophecies. This is Joel chapter two. He says, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, this would be the beginning of Peter's first evangelical Bible study. And he said, it will come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And so we see uh, a partial fulfillment um, here, verse 21, and anybody that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this could not have happened unless Jesus would have gone to heaven. And he says, it says in Ephesians 4 that when he ascended, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And the one that ascended filled all things. And then it says he gave gifts to men. Well, this would be this event right here. What's, what is happening here is Peter... Um, is going to give, under the influence of God's Holy Spirit, this very straightforward Bible study about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's preaching the gospel from verses um, 22 on. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
And he begins talking about Jesus, the son of David, why he came. Um, a prophet uh, full of the, the fruit of his body that he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. And he's talking about the resurrection. And then Peter says, and we were witnesses to this. We walked with him for three years. We watched him die. We seen him after the resurrection. And um, he basically says in verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when the crowd heard this, when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. In other words, because of the Holy Spirit, we read in John that the primary purpose for the coming of the Holy Spirit was to bring repentance to people, to bring conviction. Yes, he's the comforter, but he's only the comforter after he's a convictor. So when, when Peter told them, look, you killed your Messiah, their reaction in verse 37 was, it cut them to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, well, what should we do? Now what do we do if that be the case? And Peter said to them, repent. Well, they're already under conviction. And so we have a mixed multitude. We're going to have people that are going to hear this message, and they're going to go, He's right. I'm guilty. And I I sense that conviction of God's spirit in my heart. There would have been others who would have been hard-hearted and they would have blown it off and they would have walked away. But Peter says you need to repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this is going to be the first of several places this morning. I want to make a distinction between being baptized and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And especially the word promise in verse 39. It says, for the promise is to you. Well, what's the promise? Well, that's the Holy Spirit. Um, And to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. And it says, Peter, with many other words, testified. He exhorted them. Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his words were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to the church. Peter, not bad for your first time out. First time giving a Bible study. First time being an evangelist. And what's the response? 3,000 people get saved. Now, like I said with the first service, I, I can't read this verse without making the connection, this is the day the Holy Spirit came. Grace came. If you're taking notes in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 17, it says the law came by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So when we go back to the day the law was given, you can see Charlton Heston coming down from Mount Sinai, and he sees the people naked dancing around the golden calf, Well, he takes the tablets and he takes them and he throws them and they break. And then he tells the Levites, put on your sword. Everybody that was dancing around that calf, kill him. And it says that day, the day the law was given, 3,000 people died. You tell me it was a coincidence that 3,000 people died when the law was given 
And you tell me it's a coincidence that 3,000 people got saved the day the Holy Spirit was given? That's not a coincidence, my friend. And uh, we see patterns like this develop, and it really builds up a person's faith. What does the scripture say about the law? The law brings death, but the spirit brings life. And we have a picture of it, a perfect uh, picture of it here. And so as we begin to answer the question, did the disciples obey the Lord? Did they preach the gospel? And did they baptize people? Yeah, the very first time the gospel was preached. Let's take it a step farther and go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is primarily about Philip. Let me tell you a little bit about Philip. Because so many people got saved, all of a sudden you're taking care of a lot of people that you ordinarily would go home to their country, but they're sticking around. They need to get rooted and grounded. And we read about Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas selling property so that um, people could eat. And, and we find that Philip was chosen to be one of the deacons that would be a table waiter to help pass out the daily, daily food. Well, he was a servant, but he also had the gift of evangelism. And so we read in verse 5 that Philip went up to Samaria. Samaria would be north of Jerusalem. And when he got to town, he started, the Lord started using him in an incredible way. It tells us in verse 7 that unclean spirits came out of people, that many that were possessed with devils. Um, we have people being healed that were paralyzed and the lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. I bet you there was. If you had a friend that never walked before and all of a sudden he's walking, had a friend that was messed up and demon-possessed, and now he's set free. You bet you there'd be joy in that city. But there was also a sorcerer in town whose name was Simon. We read that in verse 9. Who previously practiced sorcery in the city, and he astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. Everybody looked up to him. I like to call this guy the big man on campus. Uh, this man, he, he told the people, was a great man, and had the power of God. And the people heeded him because he astonished them with his sorcery for a long time. But when Philip showed up into town preaching the gospel um, and the kingdom of heaven, both men and women, verse 12, were baptized. And then Simon himself also believed And he was baptized, and he continued with Philip, and he was amazing the miracles and the signs which were done. Now the word gets out down in Jerusalem. Hey, there's revival breaking up in Samaria. And um, they sent word to Peter and John. Now these would have been apostles and disciples to come up there. The question is why? Uh, Who, when they had come, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had... He, the Holy Spirit, had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, to me, this is cut and clear, that we have two different events taking place here. I believe that it's possible to be saved and be baptized and still not have the Holy Spirit. And I actually believe it's possible to be saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and not yet have been baptized. 
And I hope as we go through this that 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 will become more and more clear. And again, at this point, I would say that without exception, it's always believe first and then be baptized and and not the other way around. Well, let's take this a step farther with Simon. Because Simon saw in verse 18 that through the laying on of hands of the apostles that the Holy Spirit was given, and he offered them 20 bucks. I'm putting it in Dwight's paraphrase. He offered him money. We don't know how much. And he basically said, I want to do that. I'll give you some money if you show me how. And Peter rebuked him. And Peter said, your money is going to perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money? You have neither part nor portion in this matter. Your heart is definitely not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, for your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart that he might forgive you, for I see that you're poisoned by bitterness, you're bound by iniquity. And that freaks Simon out. He says, pray to the Lord that none of those things happen to me. And they went on and they preached the gospel. We're going to come back to Simon a little bit later. Suffice to say, for now, that in the first part of Acts chapter 8, we have Philip. But if you turn the page, he's in the middle of revival. And this this is a good application as we do a little sidetrack here with the life, life of Philip. Imagine being in the middle of revival. And you're the main guy that God is using. And all of a sudden, in the clear blue, the Lord taps you on his shoulder and says, you know what? Uh, I'm going to move you, Philip, and take you out of Samaria. I'm going to take you down to the Gaza Strip. Now, most people here, because of the news and everything that's happening in Israel, do you know where the Gaza Strip is? It's on the Mediterranean. It's where the Philistines were from. Uh, This is how you'll know. Just recently in the news... um, they have been sending um, drones and kites over the Gaza Strip into Israel, and they're starting fires in Israel. That's where Gaza is at. Well, this is where the Lord tells Philip to go. Leave the revival and go to Gaza. And that's all he tells him. And he does it. You know, if it's me, I'm saying, look, Lord, it's happening here now, and down in Gaza... There is absolutely nothing down there. I've been down there. It's desert. There's nothing there at all. But Philip doesn't do that. And my point with that is often the Lord will say, son, daughter, this is what I want you to do. And our next response is, and then what? (laughs) Once we get there, and then what? Well, there is none of that here. He got Plan A without knowing plan B. What was he going to do once he got there? That takes faith. If you go by your intellect, you go, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's crazy. It's happening here, desert there. I should be staying here. But he's obedient. He no sooner gets down there in verse 27, and we have a man from Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Chandis, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. Here's a man who's a seeker. I believe he's an honor seeker. He's come all the way from Ethiopia because he heard there's there's a God in Jerusalem. And he went there. And he comes back and he still hasn't found what he's looking for. And God sees this man's heart. 
And I believe that any person who's honest about looking for the truth, we like to say that we found the Lord. Well, the truth is the Lord sent people after us and he found us. Good place for an amen. amen. And that was the case here. But the Lord saw this guy's heart. So what does he do? He taps Philip on the shoulder where the revival's taking place. Say, there's a hungry guy who's looking for me. He's on his way home to Ethiopia. Cut him off at the pass. And so he gets down there. Philip does. And he sees this guy in the chariot. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, now here's plan B. Now he knows the reason he's there. Go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And Philip says to the guy, hey, do you have any idea what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up into the chariot and sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read just happened to be Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb silent before its shears, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and he said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and began at this scripture and he preached Jesus to him. Well, how can he preach Jesus through this scripture? Well, first of all, he was led before the slaughter before the shears, and he did not open his mouth. Remember when the Lord stood before Pilate? Stood before Caiaphas? They were grilling him, and he wouldn't answer him. He held his tongue. He says, well, are you a truth? Are you a king? He says, yes, I am, but my kingdom's not of this world. So he began preaching this to the Ethiopian, and between verse 35 and 36, What's not explained, but it's definitely implied, is that he taught the doctrine of baptism. And if you want to believe in Jesus, said your first act of obedience is going to be water baptism. How do I know? Because of verse 36. As they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? Well, Philip explained it to him. And here's a condition for anybody who's never been baptized, and you want to know what's the criteria for being baptized, it's in verse 37. If, if you believe with not some of your heart, with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water And he baptized him. And when he came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now picture this for a second. He's just got his mind blown away by understanding the whole gospel as he's hungry and he's looking, and they just happen to come across some water in the Gaza Strip, yeah, And uh, he gets baptized, and no sooner is he baptized, and Philips disappears. He, He had to think, it was an angel. I'm sure the guy's thinking, this guy was an angel. No, the Lord raptured Philip, and he takes him to a place called Azotus, which is 17, 18 miles up the Mediterranean. And he ends up living 
and camping out and staying in the city of Caesarea. Now, for those of you who've been to Israel, you know why Philip stayed in Caesarea. It is absolutely beautiful. It's on the Mediterranean. The climate is perfect. The aqua blue uh, green sea is just incredible. Paul spent two years in prison there. And later on, we're going to read about Philip. And um, he's got daughters who have the gift of prophecy. So this is uh, sort of the end of Philip's story here. But again, uh, um, we have here the condition of baptism, if you believe, with all of your heart. Now, as we look at uh, Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of the Apostle Paul, who's called Saul of Tarsus. Saul hated Christians. He was the one who held the coat so they could stone Stephen, the first martyr. He shook his head in agreement with him that he should die. That wasn't enough for Saul. He wanted to rout him out. So he went and got legal papers. He heard that a bunch of them had hightailed it to Damascus. So here's Saul of Tarsus going after Christians, chasing them all the way up to Damascus. Except he doesn't get very far and a light comes from heaven and a voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against a cactus. Ever try to kick a cactus? Don't do it. (laughs) And that's what he was doing. In other words, the Lord was saying, it's pretty hard to fight against me, Saul. Now, there were other people there, but nobody heard what Saul heard. He was blind. He was blinded by this. Uh, He did not eat or drink water for three days. And after that time, they came to Damascus, verse 10. There was a Christian named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. He said, arise and go to the street that's called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas of one called Saul of Tarsus. And behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias knew all about Saul. He was watching his back for Saul. Lord, I've heard much about this man, how he harms uh, your saints in Jerusalem. And uh, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, no, go, for he is my chosen vessel to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And 16, I want you to think about it a little bit. And I'm also going to show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Gang, you need to understand that you will be ostracized. You will be rejected by people you've known your whole life. If you give your life to Jesus Christ and begin seriously following him, um, you'll be called one of them people. One of those guys, uh, you'll be treated dif- differently at the workplace. And Jesus said, clearly, don't think I've come to bring peace. I have not. I've come to bring a sword. And there, are, in your own household, there's going to be divisions, all because now you're a Christian. 
And it's harder with the family. Let's face it. You know, of all the people that said, I'm different now, I'm born again. <laughs> yeah, right. Jesus' brothers and sisters didn't even believe on him. He said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own land, and, uh, or the other way around. And so they did not believe on him until after the resurrection. So I point this out because it's not being said enough today. Count the cost. If you're thinking about being baptized and um, giving your life to Jesus Christ, then you need to hear everything that goes along with it. I'll tell you right now, it's the greatest blessings that you'll ever have in your entire life. I'll also tell you right now, the greatest trials you'll ever go through in this world will be because you're a Christian. I just read the headlines the other day, what they're doing to Christians up in Canada. And that's a whole other side thing that uh, I gotta stay away from because I got too many notes here. (laughs) So with, with him... He, he tells him straight out how many things he's going to suffer for being a Christian. Verse 17, and Ananias went his way and entered the house, laid his hands on him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight, so all of a sudden he sees, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what happens here is he's filled, Saul, the Apostle Paul, is filled with the Holy Spirit at this moment. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So here we have Saul's conversion, baptized in the Spirit, and now baptized also in water. And that's, um, that's what I like to call a road to Damascus conversion. Most people... A lot of them get saved in Sunday school, nothing dramatic. Uh, Some people sitting in a pew, the lights just go on, and in a real simple way they get saved. Other people have extremely dramatic conversions, and I've been privileged to see many of them. My best friend's uh, testimony is just off the charts on how God God saved saved him. And... um, and this is Saul's. Let's, take, let's go one step farther and go to Acts chapter 10. And here we have the story of the first Gentile who's going to get saved. Now, setting the stage for this, Gentiles can't be saved. They're not Jewish. And Jesus came to the lost house of the tribes of Israel. So for a Gentile to get saved, there have to be some preconditioning done on the part of the Lord For Peter to ever set foot, which was taboo, into a Gentile's house. How do you get Peter's attention? Well, in verse 9 of chapter 10, Cornelius is praying. An angel appears to him. It says he needs to go to Joppa. Joppa, Tel Aviv is metropolitan. Joppa is literally within walking distance of Tel Aviv. It's right out of the Mediterranean. Except there it's quaint. And it's, a, it's like a fishing village. And um, in verse 6, it says that uh, Simon, he's lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Now, when I think of this, if you've got an angel that's standing in front of you, why not use the angel <laughs> instead of Peter? And, but yet, the angel says, no, send to this house, and it's Simon the Tanner, 
and tell him that um, he's being sent for to go to Cornelius's uh, house because he's praying there. Well, for those of you who've been to Joppa, we have they have literally in Joppa this house, and it has the house of Simon the Tanner. And if you know anything about my A, B, and C sites, <laughs> this is a D minus site. <laughs> There's no way that uh, they, how do they know that Simon the Tanner lived in that house two thousand years ago? Well, anyway, they have that there for the tourists and. Sometimes the tourists buy it and sometimes they don't. To get Peter's attention, um, Peter's on the housetop. It's about the sixth hour and he's hungry. And in the middle of this, he goes and he has a vision. And in the vision, this blanket comes down and what it has on it are all the creatures and wild beasts that are unclean for a Jew to eat. And a voice comes from heaven and says, Peter, Rise, kill, and eat. And Peter gives, gives him an oxymoron. Not so, Lord. Isn't that the ultimate oxymoron? Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the Lord says, what I've cleansed, Peter, don't you dare call common or unclean. And the lights went on for Peter. Knock at the door. And he's asked to go to this house and when he gets there to verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He's no respecter of people, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And he begins to preach. I mean, Cornelius was in anxious anticipation, waiting for Peter to show up. Called his family together, called his friends together, and all of a sudden he's there. And I bet you could have heard a, a pin drop at that time. And he begins to explain who Jesus is, why he came, why he had to die. Verse 40, on the third day, he rose from the dead. And I'm a witness of it, Peter is saying. In verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people that he is he who is ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Middle of the Bible study, right at that point, the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter. Verse 44, while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And those of the circumcised, now, we're going to read a little bit later that there were six that went with Peter to this house who believed they were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on all things a Gentile. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter said, Can anybody forget, forbid water that these should not be baptized? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. All right, pause, and let's look at it again. Two baptisms. This time, they got filled with the Holy Spirit first. Then, Peter says, well, now that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, is there anybody saying that they can't be here? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and then they asked him to stay a few days. And I'm sure 
that Peter did. So in um, Acts chapter 10 here, we have the conversion of Cornelius, and again, the order of Holy Spirit first, baptism in water later. Chapter 11, verse 13, now Peter has to explain this to the rest of the the people that a Gentile can get saved. So in chapter 11, I'll just read uh, what we've just gone through, but Peter's now making a defense. Gentiles can actually get saved. So in verse 13, he told them how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa, call for Simon, whose name is Peter. He will tell you words by which you and your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like it did with us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized you with water, that's repentance, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, the second baptism. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, to stand against God? But when they heard these things, they became silent. All their prejudice, animosity towards the Gentiles, which they called dogs. And then they glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. End of discussion. And um, uh, this will come up again in Acts chapter 15, but I'm going to have you go ahead to Acts chapter 16, because my goal is simple to point out those who are baptized in the book of Acts. This will be the last one. And what's going on here is Paul and Silas are on a missionary journey. And they're sailing from Tros at this time. And as they arrive in this next town, there was a girl, verse 16, that was possessed with a spirit of divination who brought her masters much profit by fortune teller. In other words, she had a demonic spirit in her. If you're taking notes and want to go deeper into this, write down Deuteronomy 18. It talks about familiar spirits. Now, there are the charlatans, 1-800-psychic-hotline, right? Okay, so the charlatans that are out there. But having said that, there are people that are demon-possessed that have... Um, the ability to do exactly this. And this gal began to follow Paul around and proclaim that these are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And Peter got, or Paul got ticked off that he had the devil doing his advertising for him. And he turned around and rebuked the spirit and said, come out in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out that very hour. And when she went home to report the day's business to her bosses, they realized her gift was gone, if you want to call it a gift. And they got so upset with Paul and Silas, they got the crowd stirred up in verse 21. And uh, they had them commanded to be beaten with rods and then thrown into prison And as they're throwing him in the prison, they look at the jailer, who's a Roman, 
And they say, you know what happens to people who escape from a Roman jail if you're the jailkeeper? They would have killed him. And so they charged him in verse 25. So the jailer not only locks him up, but puts him in chains on top of it. So imagine your day. Lord, I'm just going around doing the best I can serving you. People don't like me. They beat me up and they put me in prison. You love me, Lord. That's what I'd be having a little pity party there. What about Paul and Silas? Nah, about midnight, they were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening. Gang, do you know that when you go through the fire, people are watching? They're going to see if you're going to be down in dumps or blue. Are you standing upon God's word where it says he will work all things out together for good to those that love him? One's an emotion that can bring you down. You stand on the word of God, God's going to work it to good. How? I don't know. The Bible just says he will. That's why we have to put our confidence on this more than your intellect, more than your emotion. This has got to trumpet. And what happened? Well, had an earthquake in verse 26. Um, the doors immediately opened and the chains fell off, Paul and Silas, because they were singing praise songs. Well, the jailer's thinking Harry Carey in verse 27. He awakens from his sleep. He sees the doors are open and um, he figures it's all over. So he gets ready to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do it, we're still here. And he called for light and ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he said, what kind of God is this? And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer to that question is in verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you will be saved, you and your household. Then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and his family were baptized. They were baptized right away. And when he found them into his house, he set food before him. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his house. So here we have... um, because Paul and Cyrus worshipped, the Lord worked it towards good. I just want to comment on this. Um, in verse 31, it says, you and your household. What this does not mean is just because mom and dad are saved, that automatically your 15 and 16 and 17-year-old kid are going to be saved too. Good chance of them being saved. But by that age, they have to exercise their own free will. What I'm reading here is everybody at this Bible society exercised their own free will to believe, and then they were allowed and granted baptism um, uh, after that. So let's take it a step farther and say that um, baptism can't save anybody. Baptism is an act of obedience that we do because it's an outward act of what has happened to us inwardly. It doesn't save you like I talked about in Roman Catholicism and in Protestantism, and that there is a difference between the two. 
One example, the thief on the cross. He was never said a sinner's prayer. Uh, he was never baptized. And yet Jesus said to him, today you're going to be with me in heaven. That thief on the cross is in heaven today, and one over on this side is in hell. One believed on him, and he didn't even say it. He just said, this is a sinner's prayer. Lord, remember me. And the Lord did, and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What's your point, Dwight? He was never baptized. Baptism does not equate salvation. But for a definition of it, let's go to Romans chapter 6, because it tells us exactly what baptism is. Romans 6, the first six verses. Paul says to the Romans, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? (laughs) I used to drive cab uh, when I was a kid and just, uh, no, I I don't know if I was saved yet or not, in Oshkosh. And I used to pick people up in my cab and take them to church and then I'd pick them up from church and take them to the bar. <laughs> and I would do this week after week. It was pick them up at church, then pick them up, take them to the bar, and then pick them up at the bar and watch them try to walk in the house when they got home. And um, that's what this means. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. You let, the world goes away when you become a Christian, and that's what you're saying. So a definition of baptism how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Paul no longer hated Gentiles when he was saved. He was sent to the Gentiles. When a person comes to the Lord, if you're taking notes, this is the best verse that I know that describes it, 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It's called being born again. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. What you're acting out is an outward action of something that has happened to you inwardly. And before the whole world, remember the Lord said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. If you deny me before men, then I'll deny you before my Father. What is baptism? Well, let me qualify it by saying this. To the world, what is more most ridiculous thing to do but a grown person going out and getting dunked in water and then coming back up again? And the world thinks that's crazy. But to those of us who understand what the scriptures teach on it, without exception, it's always believe first, and then to show that you're not ashamed of being a Christian. And that's what you're saying. I'm being baptized today. And I, I don't care who knows. I don't care if the whole world knows that I belong to Jesus Christ. And the old life is dead. And I'm coming forth this new creation. And I want to walk in newness of life. Does it mean you'll never sin again? No, you're going to sin every day. On your best day, seven times. 
Well, how do you know that, Dwight? Proverbs teach it. That on your best day, you're going to sin either in thought, word, or deed. But here's the good news. The Bible says if you confess your sins, then he's faithful and he's just to forgive you and to cleanse you in all unrighteousness. You can have a clean slate every single day, even though you sin every single day. So we should never take the idea of taking advantage of God's grace, but that we understand that we're making a public declaration to everyone that I am a Christian. And by going down into that water, I'm burying the old man. Now, it's true that I do have to hold some people down longer than others. (laughs) Just kidding. Let me, let, me, uh, let me, let me the tr- tell you the truth. I wasn't baptized for two years. I got saved watching Billy Graham, and um, I had no doubt that I was a new believer. But I, was, I had ended up in Aspen, Colorado, without a church, without any Bible teaching. I didn't know I had to be baptized. Somebody said, when they told me, I was baptized all like six months old or something like that. And I was not rooted and grounded for two years. But on April 9th, 1972, I got plugged into a church and we were going down to uh, the Jesus people down in Milwaukee at that time. And um, I was baptized April 9th, 1972, in water, came out of the water speaking in tongues. So for me, it was simultaneous. I was baptized in water after being a Christian for two years. So a lot of people don't get baptized after they're saved simply because they never understand the biblical teaching on it. And once I heard it, well, then it was a no-brainer. The Lord said it, therefore, that's a done deal. And I started getting some spiritual meat on my bones. And it was simply now just a matter of obedience of what the scriptures taught on this particular issue. Um, Baptism is one of two things the Lord asks us to do that has nothing to do with salvation. One is baptism, and the other one's communion. We do that here once a month. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So we do. It's really that simple. Jesus said, believe, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Question, did the disciples do that? Without exception and every time, beginning in the book of Acts with those 3,000, and every person after that. Sometimes the Holy Spirit fell on them first, like Cornelius, and then they were baptized, or sometimes it was the other way around. And so you can't put the Lord in a box with that. So how does one receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Let's say you've been baptized, but not baptized in the Holy Spirit. How do you get it? Turn to Luke chapter 11. Just three verses. And the context that the Lord puts us in, I like it. Because he attributes it in the manner of being hungry for something. So in verse 11, he says, If a son asks for bread from his father, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How do you get saved? You respond by asking. You have not because you ask not. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? By simply asking the Lord to give it to you. Well, what if I don't feel anything? Well, did you feel anything when you got saved? Some will say yes and some will say no. Some received it as an act of faith. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Some of you had a road to Damascus conversion where the Lord had to play hardball with you to get your attention. And so whatever it, whatever it takes. Isn't that our prayer for our loved ones? Lord, whatever it takes. I don't care if they have to go through hell and high waters to get saved. And unfortunately, some of you today, the only thing you're going to remember about my Bible study is that I said hell in the middle of my Bible study. (laughs) Well, that's what we pray for. Lord, whatever it takes. I don't care what they have to go through now, but I don't want them to go to hell. I don't want them to go through the great tribulation. So you play hardball with them if you have to, if that's what it takes. But the Bible says, you know, it's the goodness of the Lord that leads a man to repentance. And um, we're told to provoke Provoke people through jealousy. Let them see you have perfect peace in the middle of a storm. And they go, what's up with that? That's not normal. And when they see that joy and that perfect peace, just like Paul and Silas, remember, people, prisoners are listening and they're watching. And so we have in here, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? To those who ask him. And whether, whether you feel it, or not, just believe it. And God has gifts that he's given. Um, One of the reasons people don't receive the Holy Spirit and they ask for it, remember Simon the sorcerer? Did not he want the Holy Spirit? He was willing to slip money to Peter and John. Hey, I want that too. I used to be the big man on campus. I want to be again. And Peter rebukes him. He says, you're never going to receive the Holy Spirit with that attitude. You're full of bitterness and all this stuff. You think you can buy the Holy Spirit? So if it's, a, it's a motive, really, of hunger. And his hunger was not the right hunger. Everybody with me with Simon the Sorcerer? So he was not allowed uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit because he needed to get his heart right first. All right, I want to close this morning because that's the teaching I want to close with, you know, I often say for every New Testament, every New Testament uh, teaching, there's an Old Testament picture. Turn to the book of Exodus chapter 14 in the Old Testament. And while you're turning, let me tell you a little story from men's prayer yesterday. It's worth sharing. The Bible says, make known the deeds of the Lord amongst the people. I'll share a little thing that he did for me yesterday. God's in big things, and God can be in the little things. So, um, like Ben's prayer, we just simply read through the Bible. Each person takes five verses, and then we comment on them. And um, I'm reading chapter 12, and I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to look really close at chapter 12 of Exodus because it's about the Passover and the final judgment of the angel of death killing the firstborn of Egypt. And to commemorate that day so it will never be forgotten, we read in verse 2 of chapter 12, this month will be a beginning of months. It will be the first month of the year for you. Well, 
when you study the months of Israel, this would have been the month of Nisan, which was the seventh month, okay? And then on the tenth day, you take a lamb into your house, and you inspect the lamb, make sure it's without blemish. And then on the fourteenth day, we read in verse six, on the fourteenth day of the seventh month, all of Israel will kill the lamb at twilight. So you have the seventh month, and it's the 14th day. And I'm going, wait a minute. Today is the seventh month of the 14th day. And I'm going, what are the chances of that happening? Now, I challenge you on this next one to do your homework. Because um, the day before was Friday the 13th. And it's a day that they don't, that people today don't even have a, uh, 413 with their elevators are that superstitious about it. Question, where did that originate and where did it come from? Go ahead and Google it. Google in Friday the 13th and Passover. And you'll, what, I won't be dogmatic about this, but I'm sitting there at men's prayer thinking yesterday was Friday the 13th and I know that's where I believe the superstition started from when all the firstborn of Egypt was killed. And um, I Googled it again today, and the argument is, well, Passover's on the 14th on the Hebrew calendar, but on the Egyptian calendar, it's the 13th. Take it for what it's worth. It blew my mind yesterday. (laughs) And so that has nothing to do with chapter 14. But it's an interesting story, don't you think? I thought so. So we have an Old Testament picture of the New Testament teaching. Well, we're teaching on water baptism. So in verse 21 of chapter 14, everybody knows this because you've watched the Ten Commandments, and you have Moses separating the Red Sea. We have the children of Israel walking through on dry land, and then we have the Egyptians following through And as soon as the Egyptians are in, the Lord causes the water to come back on them, and all the Egyptians are killed. Let me read just part of it. Verse 26, the Lord stretched out your hand over the sea, and the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. Moses did so. And so the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots of the horsemen, and all the army. You really believe there's chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea? Go ahead, guys, put it up on the screen. I forgot to do it the first service. There they are. And if you Google that, they're all over the Internet with a lot more detailed skeletons and um, complete chariots, chariots with just the wheels knocked off. And, um, you know, people who don't believe the Bible say, well, you know, it was really the Reed Sea, and it was only two feet deep, and that's how they crossed over. Amazing that the whole Egyptian army drowned in two feet of water. Now, it happened just the way the scripture says it happened. And what it is is a picture. Now, when a person gets saved, what do we say? Come out from among them. Come out of the world, right? Come out of the world and be separated. So, Egypt, in scriptures, is always a type of the world. And now, if you're coming out of the world, and as a new believer, what's the first thing you do? 
You get baptized. Well, what's baptism? It's a picture of something going underwater and dying. What? The world. And you have the perfect picture. You have Egypt, the Egyptians, the world. They go through, and if you look at chapter 15, Israel sings a song. Chapter 15 is the song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. We're going to be singing this afternoon at the baptism. Why? Because it's a joyous occasion. Why? Because something died when you were baptized. At least that's what you're saying. And you're coming forth this new picture. And I believe this is a perfect picture. And now for the next 40 years, they walk by faith. And um, let's close this morning by looking at Joshua chapter 3. This is now 40 years later. If that's a baptism of, of water... I believe the crossing of the Jordan a second time. You see, God didn't just separate the waters once at the Red Sea. He also did it as the children of Israel were about to enter the promised land. We find in Joshua 3, verse 13, they're getting ready to go into something that God has promised them. Okay, it's called the promised land. Moses can't do it because he represents the law. Only Joshua can take him into God's promises. And it came to pass, verse 13, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters will come down from upstream and they will stand as a heap So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And all those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan. And the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped the edge of the water. Now in parentheses, for the Jordan overflows its bank during the whole time of the harvest. The reason that's there, gang, is so that you don't think it was just a little trickle. This was flood stage that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, uh, the city that is beside Zeratan. And so the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabia, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. And the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed over the Jordan. I believe the Bible teaches there's two baptisms. One's water. Um, The picture would be the Red Sea. One is a baptism of entering into the promises of God. I'll leave you with three scriptures from the New Testament. First one, Galatians 3. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. In Christ Jesus, that he might receive the promise, the promise of the Spirit through faith. Ephesians 1.3. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And the last one, Acts 2.33 Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out which you now see and hear. I believe that in uh, these teachings on these two baptisms that we actually have two Old Testament pictures. 
that are there. And what that does, you know, it shows um, the unbelievable depth of the book that you're holding in your lap this morning and how detailed it can be. Even to the point during a men's prayer meeting on a Saturday morning that we're reading about the 7th of of uh, Nisan on the 14th day. Little things like that um, are just things that really increase our faith. So why should one be baptized? The simple answer is because Jesus said so. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for what your word has to say about biblical baptism and the baptism of your spirit. Lord, I pray today for those that are being baptized that this would be a special day for them and uh, that you'd go before us, pray your spirit would be poured out on those that are being baptized today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.